Chapter 86 of A History of England. I'm David Beeson. Now that William Pitt the Younger's gone, let's take a few minutes to think about what he achieved. I've tried to be even-handed in my treatment of him, talking about his failures and failings, as well as his successes. For instance, his repression of dissent was often troublingly brutal, especially in Ireland, where it spilt over into military force. But he also had some notable successes. Among the most significant was the way he continued the process of rebalancing power away from the monarchy and towards Parliament. You may remember Rockingham declaring that if he accepted the office of Prime Minister, King George III must agree not to resist American independence. We said at the time that a parliamentarian dictating the behaviour of a monarch this way was unprecedented and a remarkable swing in power. Pitt took that process a lot further. By twice refusing the king's call to become prime minister, he made sure that when he accepted it on the third time of asking, it was with real power and on his own terms. Even the way he fell from power when George III vetoed his attempt at Catholic emancipation underlined the principle that he would not serve if the king exercised such authority. The king was still powerful when Pitt stood down as prime minister, but less so than when he first took office. Pitt also had other significant successes. He modified duties on imports to make smuggling unprofitable, a much more economical way of tackling the problem than pouring resources into suppressing smugglers. As one of the most mathematically gifted prime ministers, he made the taxation system fairer and more effective. And whatever his failures in the land war, he ensured Britain had the naval resources to establish its dominance at sea. What was more disappointing was the abandonment of important causes in which he had once passionately believed. They included making parliamentary representation fairer and addressing the problem of members of parliament being offered salaried positions, principally by the king, to buy their loyalty. To some extent, that was down to Pitt's realisation long before a later Prussian politician, Otto von Bismarck, said it, that politics is the art of the possible. A government that tolerates opposition can only act with a majority behind it. Without one, initiatives, even the most necessary, are watered down or abandoned. That's obviously less efficient than a system where a single figure can impose necessary measures. Today, many countries seem to be hankering for that kind of strongman regime. The problem is that strong men are hard to stop when they go wrong and harder still to replace. They begin to exercise just the kind of autocratic power Pitt worked hard to deny the king. The inefficiency of parliamentary procedures seemed a price worth paying for the protection of parliamentary safeguards. Those of us who enjoy the freedom they provide might be inclined to agree. At times, however, in the pursuit of politics as the art of the possible, Pitt may have backed off important measures because he wrongly saw them as impossible. The slave trade was a case in point. In 1804, while Pitt was still Prime Minister, his old friend William Wilberforce started again after a four-year gap to bring forward his yearly proposal to abolish the trade. The atmosphere was beginning to move his way. 
abolition had seemed dangerously radical when it was associated with the French Revolution, but that was over. Indeed, the far more familiar monarchical regime Napoleon had now reintroduced even sent troops to overthrow the government set up by a slave revolt in Saint-Domingue, present-day Haiti. Abolition wasn't seen as so radical anymore, or particularly French. The Commons passed Wilberforce's measure in 1804, helped by Irish MPs in the Westminster Parliament following the Union of Britain and Ireland. The proposal only failed in the Lords. The following year, Pitt's government took a small but hugely important step towards abolition. It banned the slave trade to any territories captured from enemies during the war. The reasoning was that some of them might be handed back in an eventual peace treaty, so it made no sense to enrich them with slave labour in the meantime. But then Pitt pleaded with Wilberforce not to propose abolition again in 1805. He felt it was an unnecessary and risky distraction as the war with France heated up again. Wilberforce went ahead anyway, but this time, to his disappointment, he lost even in the Commons by a small majority. Could Pitt have turned things round? Since it did indeed pass in the year following his death, it's hard not to feel that he may have overestimated the opposition to a measure he'd always supported. Perhaps it was down to the failing energy of a man in increasing ill health, but he didn't throw his weight behind Wilberforce, and he missed the chance to add this achievement to his record. The art of the possible, indeed, but maybe he occasionally viewed as impossible what was in fact within his grasp. So, abolition would be the achievement of his successors. And who were they? Do you remember Lord Grenville urging Pitt to form a coalition, a ministry of all the talents? A suggestion Pitt turned down? Well, with Pitt gone, Grenville got his chance. Even while he was alive, Pitt's Commons majority had been thin, and without him, his followers, the group known as Pitt's Friends, simply couldn't hang on even to that. The king realised he had to call for a broader-based government. He still loathed Charles James Fox, but realised he wasn't going to be able to keep him out of office anymore. However, he could at least avoid making him Prime Minister. Instead, he called on Grenville, who formed a government with the factions behind Fox, who became Foreign Secretary, and Addington, another man with a new irritating alias as Lord Sidmouth. Grenville had assembled all the talents except Pitt's friends. As it happens, Fox didn't play much of a role in the talents. Having waited 23 years to get back into government after Pitt drove him out in 1783, he enjoyed his success for just eight months before dying himself. Perhaps the best measure of the performance of the Ministry of All the Talents is that many contemporaries refer to it as the Ministry of All the Blunders. For all their criticism of their predecessors, they were no more successful in reaching a peace with France or defeating it in war. In fact, Napoleon and his devious foreign minister Talleyrand neatly used peace negotiations to play Britain off against Prussia. The Prussians had remained neutral during the War of the Third Coalition, but the British would have liked them to join the Fourth. Napoleon agreed to hand over Hanover, occupied by France since 1801, to Prussia. You'll remember that Hanover was a separate territory of the British king, which he headed as elector. 
When Prussia moved in, the Grenville government declared war and began blockading Prussian ports. Then Prussia realised that France was playing a double game. Napoleon had promised to hand Hanover back to Britain if peace could be made. Prussia opened negotiations with the Brits for a new alliance involving, as ever, big British subsidies. But the talents faffed around for far too long, allowing Napoleon, never one to let the grass grow under his feet, to move against Prussia. At a dramatic and decisive double battle at Jena and Auerstedt on the single day of the 14th of October 1806, the Prussian army was destroyed. The only benefit for Prussia from the battles was that they taught some serious lessons to some of the leading military figures of the future. One of them was Karl von Clausewitz, who understood that 18th century tactics no longer worked and, specifically, that armies needed properly organised and trained staffs. Because of these devastating defeats, when the talents finally got around to offering subsidies, there was no Prussian army left to subsidise. In fact, this government's only real breakthrough was the abolition of the slave trade. Not that it really was an achievement of the government. Since it contained anti-abolitionists, it couldn't take up the cause as a body, but had to leave it to ministers to promote it as individuals. Fortunately, one of them was the Prime Minister, Grenville. When it came to proposing the measures again in 1806, Wilberforce agreed with Grenville that it might be best if it didn't come from him once more. That might just seem like the old troublemaker making trouble again. Grenville would take on the task himself. Grenville decided to start by extending pit span of the previous year on trading slaves to territories captured from the enemy to those the enemy still held. If it made sense not to trade slaves to places that might have to be handed back, it made even more sense not to supply them to territories that had never been captured in the first place. That brought full abolition one step closer. Then a great anti-abolitionist argument that the Americans would merely step in if Britain banned the trade got knocked on the head. The US Constitution ruled out legislation against the importation of people, a fine euphemism for the slave trade, before the 1st of January 1808. In 1807, President Thomas Jefferson initiated legislation to end the US slave trade from that date. Back at Westminster, Grenville, who sat in the Lords, decided to introduce the measure in that chamber for once rather than in the Commons. The Lords had always been the stumbling block, so if Grenville could get the legislation through there, the approval of the Commons should be easy. And he did. Now a race started. The talents were falling out with the King and over the very same policy that had brought Pitt down. As a war measure, the government wanted to raise Irish troops and felt it would make sense to allow Catholics to become officers. That was a right they'd briefly enjoyed in the separate Irish army until the Act of Union between Britain and Ireland ended it. But the King was having none of even such limited Catholic emancipation. As the anti-slave trade legislation made its way through the House of Commons, tensions mounted between the King and government. Finally, George dismissed the talents on the 19th of March 1807, the day after the legislation had returned to the Lords 
for consideration of amendments made by the Commons. By then, though, momentum for the measure was unstoppable. Grenville left office on the 24th of March 1807, the very day the legislation passed its final stage in the Lords. Its enactment was announced one day later, on the 25th of March. Britain abolished its slave trade from the 1st of May 1807. On the 2nd of March, Thomas Jefferson had signed a similar act in the US, banning the trade from the 1st of January 1808, the earliest date constitutionally allowed. A big step had been taken on both sides of the Atlantic. However, not a single slave had been freed. Indeed, Wilberforce himself had even argued that abolishing the slave trade would improve conditions for existing slaves, who would be left just where they were. Southern states in the US went along with abolition because they understood that the existing slave population was big enough to be self-sustaining. What stopped, however, was one of the ugliest businesses ever devised the forcible abduction of West African people and their transportation in cruel and often lethal conditions to a country thousands of miles away where they could be worked to death and subjected to vicious punishment for no crime and with no hope of freedom or relief. Slave trade abolition would prepare the ground for the abolition of slavery, but not yet. It was a major step on a long road, but only one of those steps. Even that much had taken 20 years of campaigning by men such as Wilberforce. They had been stigmatised as dangerous radicals, undermining the very foundations of society. They were accused of betraying traditions and jeopardising business opportunities. Today, we see their accusers as morally bankrupt. Then, they seem to speak for common sense. In our own time, similar accusations are thrown at people arguing against climate change or, indeed, for the Black Lives Matter movement, which is, after all, only the latest chapter of the fight against slavery, when all said and done. So, here's a question I leave you to ponder. Are the people resisting these movements today, in terms so similar, all that different from those who fought such a long rearguard action against abolition of the slave trade in Wilberforce's time. Enjoy that thought. Thanks for listening.